Psalm 8 is a poem. It's a hymn. It speaks about God and about our world and about ourselves as human beings. It hints at what is wrong and what God has done about that. A worldview is the big story that people tell to make sense of things. Everyone has a worldview, whether they know it or not. Every culture, every civilization. And Psalm 8 captures so much of the Christian worldview. And that makes Psalm 8 controversial, countercultural, because the worldview of our society is completely different to the Christian worldview. It's a different view of human beings, a different view of the world, and a different view of God. And that's why Psalm 8 is so important. That's why we're looking at it this evening. Because we need our minds shaped by God's word and not by our culture. And that makes it a great psalm if you're not a Christian here this evening. I sort of hope some of you aren't. Hey, because churches, for people to come and find out more. It helps you to see the Christian view of things, to consider, to weigh things up. Now, rather than walk through this psalm verse by verse, I, I want to take it as a whole this evening and pull out five things for you to take away. Five things for you to take away from Psalm 8. And I've also got something to show you. Show and tell this evening. <laughs> Number one then. David starts and ends with God. David starts and ends with God. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then verse 9. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's either like a frame around a painting beginning at the end, or it's like a, a statement to prove. I spent three years of my life doing mathematics, and uh, you'd, you'd have a statement, and you'd have to try and prove it. At the bottom, you'd write QED, or you'd draw a little box. It's proved, and it's like that. As it were, uh, the thesis, the idea, it started there at the beginning of the psalm. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. By the end, you can repeat it. It's been proved. It's been shown. It's clear that the great theme of the psalm is those framing words. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent in your name is, is your name in all the earth. David starts and ends with God. As does the whole Bible. And that is pretty countercultural in our society. God in the West, God in the UK, God in London, God in Belvedere, is definitely peripheral. Of course you're allowed to believe in God, as long as you keep it to yourself, as long as it's a private hobby or a quirk, as long as it's a harmless eccentricity, as long as it's the right sort of God, and it doesn't impact your public life. 
Sarbate is the very opposite of that view, that approach. David starts and ends with God. So let me ask, what about you? What place does God have in your life? Does it all begin with him? Is he the great goal, the great end of it? Do you feel the same way as the psalmist? Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth? Can you say, our Lord, reverent but intimate? Also as part of a community of God's people. Our, oh Lord, our Lord. David starts and ends with God. And one practical way to reflect that in your life is to start and end each day with God. Meditating on his word and responding to him. Do you do that? Can I commend it to you? If you don't do that already, have two bookmarks. One in the old and one in the new. In the beginning of the day, start reading maybe in the New Testament. Read a chapter, a few verses, a chunk, a passage. And in the evening, do it in the Old Testament. There are other ways to read the Bible. But uh, there's one to start with. If you don't, do you start and end your day with God, meditating on his word and responding to him? Number two, David sees God's fingerprints all over his world. David sees God's fingerprints all over his world. Let me show you something. This is my show and tell moment. I was going to come on the, the bus, but I thought that it might be a little bit awkward. And so I came in my car. I brought this to show you. Yeah, it's far better looking than me. I can stand behind it. What do you think this was painted with? No. If you, if you came and felt it, you'd know it wasn't. Okay, it was painted. Use it. So that was paints. How did the paints get on here? Brush. We're going with a brush. Nope. Shall I tell you? Shall I give you a clue? Fingers. This is a finger painting. Finger painting. So, all you young ones, you can try this when you get home. Find a bit of wall. Nice no, bit of white wall. You know, finger painting. You know that. You can look at the back. Those were the hands. What did it? Finger painting. What does God's finger painting look like? Well, you'll see it this evening. You go out. See the stuff. Well, you don't see. We don't see stars in London, do we? Just sort of just imagine. Go go home and find a, a picture of the, the stars in 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 the night. Yeah, what does it say? It says it there, doesn't it? Fingers. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. God sees, David sees God's fingerprints all over his world. What, what inspired David to write this psalm? What got him into the zone? Well, I think there are two clues. For one thing, this psalm echoes the very first chapter of scripture. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have that here in the psalm, don't we? You've set your glory above the heavens and uh, when I consider the heavens and, and then we've got this reference 
uh, oh, the earth first, isn't it? Your name in all the earth, set your glory above the heavens, heaven and earth. And then there's the animal kingdom in verses 7 and 8. Sheep and ox and beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, things that pass through the paths of the seas. They're all described in Genesis chapter 1. And above all, man, human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation. Human race, men and women together given dominion. You have made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honour. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. So it seems very likely that David was reflecting and meditating on the Bible's opening account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. But here's the other clue. It's interesting to compare Psalm 8 with Psalm 19. Psalm 19 also is about God's world. Heavens declare the glory of God. The the firmament shows forth his handiwork. But when you read Psalm 19, we read, In the heavens God set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. But here, the focus is on the moon and the stars, isn't it? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And so presumably David was out at night under the stars. It's the night sky that fills him with awe and makes him feel so small. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. You're in the countryside, it's a clear night, you gaze upward. Your eyes slowly become accustomed and more and more stars appear to your view. Stars, constellations, galaxies, hundreds, thousands. And so it is here with David. He's out at night. He's reflecting on Genesis 1. He's looking up in wonder. And above all, he's seeing God's hand revealed in his world. David sees God's fingerprints all over his world, his universe. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Verse 8, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Everything David sees points him back to God. God is a great artist. And this too is totally counter-cultural in our society. We're not sure of wonder at the natural world, at least sometimes, nature programmes and documentaries, but when was the last time you heard someone on TV make the connection to God and his glory? Instead, there's this great emptiness. We're like an audience at a concert who are not allowed to clap because we've been persuaded that no one is playing the instruments. It's all just an accident. And it's so counter-instinctive that we need to be continually fed with the lie that everything came from nowhere by accident. Otherwise, we'd never keep believing it. So it's pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The light of it shines in people's faces everywhere. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. David, God, David sees God's fingerprints all over his world. And we should too. This is one of the great things of being a Christian. To have your eyes open to the wonder and excitement of creation all around us. To be in tune with what the cosmos is declaring. David starts and ends with God. David sees God's fingerprints all over the world. Number three, David puts us in our place. David puts us in our place. By us, I mean the human race. This psalm has such a healthy view of human beings. On the one hand, there's a healthy view of our smallness. Verses three and four, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him or that you care for him? We're dwarfed by the heavens. A hundred million stars in a hundred billion observable galaxies. Even the thousands of stars that we can see dwarf us. How small we are. How little we know. How much to discover. How much we will never know and never discover. David puts us in our place. But on the other hand, there's a tremendous dignity. God is mindful of us. God cares for us. We are loved. Man may be dwarfed by the heavens, but he rules the earth. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Of all these myriad living creatures, we alone are made in God's image. Only we can know and praise the creator mindfully. And this makes us different from the rest of creation. We are to turn the instinctive, the unthinking praise of nature into the reflective, articulate praise of rational beings. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And so we are called to rule and steward creation. We are responsible to exercise dominion under God. David puts us in our place. And once again, this is countercultural. You see, our society makes us big where we should be small. And it makes us small where we should be big. Our intellectual culture tells us that the only meaning that the universe could possibly have is one that we give it. The only right and wrong is something that we decide without any objective basis. We are the gods. Yet in reality, we are only creatures. And yet also our intellectual culture is squeamish about the idea of human rule. We're merely one animal out of many. Highly evolved perhaps, but not intrinsically different. Our culture makes us this strange mix of God and beast. Whereas this psalm reveals us to be mere creatures, but uniquely made in God's image with a high and honourable calling. We're not defined as a little above the beasts. We're defined as a, a little below the heavenly beings. Heaven defines us. No wonder there is so much confusion. No wonder there is so much angst 
in our society over identity and value today when we've lost our anchor to the very thing that defines us and dignifies us. David puts us in our place. That has massive implications with how we treat other people. How do you talk to other people? How do you talk about them? How do you treat the weak and the vulnerable? Have you a deep concern for the unborn and for the terminally ill? Not to mention the uncool and the terminally awkward. All made in God's image. Psalm 8 restores worth to every human being. Yet humility too. This is the antidote to so much of the... the the angst and the, 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 the struggles of identity and worth and value in our society is all here in the Bible. In one place people uh, know that they won't look for it because it won't be there, and yet it is. David puts us in our place. Starts and ends with God. Sees God's fingerprints all over the, his world. David puts us in our place. And number four, David reminds us that God's ways are unexpected. David reminds us that God's ways are unexpected. Now, in one sense, David finds the whole thing unexpected, doesn't he? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? That human beings should be put in such a position. But that isn't the unexpectedness that I'm talking about in this fourth point. One verse in this psalm is completely unexpected. It's verse 2. Verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. If verse 2 were missing, the, the psalm would go completely smoothly. In fact, it would, would be almost more smooth. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. You see how it flows on? Verse 2 is sort of like a little bit sort of intruding. Sounds as such an odd note. Talks about God's foes, the enemy, the avenger. But there's no enemy in Genesis chapter 1, a passage that David seems to be reflecting on. And who are the babes and the infants? Verse 2 is unexpected. And there are several possibilities as to what it might mean. One is simply that the wonder of newborn life is a similarly great testimony to the greatness of God. Perhaps here is David out walking under the stars and he hears a baby's cry as he walked. Certainly powerfully relevant to our age. We know so much more about life. We know about DNA. We know how it all works, how the child is formed and knit together and grows in the womb. We should be all the more in wonder how this should answer the sceptics, God's detractors. You know, the more that we know the more wonderful we discover God's world to be. We invent telescopes, how clever we are, and we see that God's universe is so much bigger than we thought. We learn to, uh, we invent microscopes, and we discover that life is so much more intricate and complicated. In a sense, it's never the sense in which we learn new things and then God's things seem less impressive. You know how it is. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you, you, know, you don't know about a situation or you don't know about a, and you watch someone do it and you go, wow, that's clever and then you learn how to do it and you go, oh yeah, I can see how they did it now but it's not like that with God 
the more we know about how God does things, the more in awe we are that they're so incredible. We'll never get to that point where we've tipped over and we're, as it were, learning more. There's no more to see and we're just learning more about and understanding it. The greatness of God's world is always ahead of us. This reference to the infant would further underline human smallness. But there's another suggestion. Uh, the Bible, you see, describes both a seen world and an unseen world. Both nature all around us and a spiritual world of angelic beings and powers and rulers and authorities. And it's clear, too, that some of these angelic beings and powers, initially created by God to be his perfect servants, turned against God. Human rebellion is not the only rebellion. There is an angelic revolt. There are demonic forces. And if these are the foes of verse 2, the enemies of verse 2, then the babes and the infants might simply be human beings. So small, so insignificant compared to the vast universe, yet whom God has called to answer his angelic detractors with our praises, our rule of his earth. What we have in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. The angelic world looks on at God's people answers them it shows them but the fact is human beings have joined the angelic revolt the serpent tempted human and life first couple also known as adam and eve and we turned our backs upon god so maybe the foes are human detractors of god enemies of god and his people but you know there's another possibility Verse 2 may be a humbling reminder that those who proclaim God's praises, see his handiwork in creation, tend to be the very weakest and insignificant. Mere infants in people's thinking. Do you still believe in God? Belvedere Chapel, do you still believe in God? Grow up. To which the answer, of course, is look up. The world. You know, you younger ones, you children you see the wonderful world and if you think how great God must be to have made all of that how amazing if you think that then you're wiser than the cleverest scientist who sees the world but never thinks about God God is answering the clever skeptics with children's voices of course such a wonderful painting had a painter of course such a work of art had an artist of course, such a complex design had a designer. Even children know that. This is the fortress. This is the armour plating of praise against all the cynics and all the atheists. It's because we are a world at war with God that people can't admit it or even see the plainest thing of all. We're reminded of Paul's words in uh, 1 Corinthians and, and chapter 1 where he describes the uh, the, the church 1 Corinthians chapter 1 the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men for you see your calling brethren, brothers and sisters that not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble are called God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not, the nothings, the nobodies, to bring to nothing the things that are. You know, you're not, you're not a very impressive group. 
we're not, are we? We're not the great and the good in our society. We're not the movers and the shakers. That's, that's how God works. That's his way of doing things. How, how countercultural is that? We want the big, we want the impressive, we want the celebrity endorsement. God prefers to use the weak, prefers to use the insignificant. That is his answer. David reminds us that God's ways are unexpected. And there's a striking example of that in the verses that we read earlier. Uh, the description of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Remember what I read from Matthew. Having cleared the temple of the hustle and the bustle, Jesus is thronged by people in great need, the blind and the lame, and he heals them. And once blind people are gazing in wonder at colours and shapes and faces, and lame people are now striding and skipping and dancing for joy, and children are caught up in the magic of it all. But the religious leaders are incensed. Jesus has exposed their hypocrisy. He's threatened their power. He's stirred up their envy. He's hindered their money-making. The children are praising Jesus as saviour and king. However little they understand, the leaders do understand and they don't like it. But Jesus sees it as an example of this very psalm, this very principle, the unanswerable answer of praise coming from the mouths of the weak and insignificant. The weak silence the powerful it's God's praise that they are speaking and God's praises are acceptably echoed by the smallest person that is a great encouragement for children God's praises are acceptably echoed by the smallest person children grandchildren great grandchildren put on the praise songs let them sing along before they can really understand the words that, that's acceptable that's pleasing it's a great encouragement for all of us when we feel very ordinary when we feel very weak when we feel very unimpressive god's ways are unexpected but there's a deeper connection still and that's our final point this evening seeing that david starts and ends with god we've seen that he david sees god's fingerprints all over his world that's the one you'll remember isn't it because of my picture seeing that David puts us in our place we're not gods we're not beasts human beings made in his image David reminds us that God's ways are unexpected and then finally David points us to Jesus we've already been reminded by that awkward verse 2 that something has happened between Genesis chapter 1 and now the world is not the perfect world that God made. Sin has come in and things are spoiled. David isn't naive. He's not pretending that the world is unspoiled as it once was. But we might wonder how he can celebrate Genesis chapter 1 at all. So much of it is echoing Genesis chapter But how can, how can David celebrate that? If man still has dominion over nature, then it's as a tyrant, not a steward. Look at the mess that human beings have made of the world. Pollution, deforestation, animal extinction. How can David possibly enthuse about Genesis 1 when it's all lost forever? The answer is, it isn't. There is one man 
who has taken rightful place as ruler of the universe. There is one man who is everything that Adam should have been, but failed to be. And there is one man who will one day restore the world to the glorious splendour of Psalm 8. Who is that man? Jesus. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. Hopefully some of these words are familiar. One testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the one who was made a little lower than the heavenly beings and then exalted. Jesus is the ultimate example of God's unexpected ways of using what seems so weak to shame the strong. How was it that Jesus conquered God's enemy? How was it that Jesus silenced the avenger? It was by dying on the cross in the place of the guilty. Is that weakness? Was that seeming insignificance? That was the way that God established strength. So what's the take home for us today? You should let Psalm 8 shape your thinking. About who God is. About the place he deserves. About who you are. Both the dignity and the humbling reality. And about how God works through weakness and insignificance. More than that, it should whet your appetite. Psalm 8 isn't just looking backwards. It's looking forwards. It's not just a wistful glance at something forever lost, but a powerful prediction of something regained and something yet to come when Jesus returns. What a thing to look forward to when human beings finally become what God intended them to be. Perfect rulers of a perfect world. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.